The Science Inside Podcast. This is the Science Inside. Good evening and welcome. This is the Science Inside, the platform which brings you the latest news, stories and events happening in the world of science and technology. I am your host, Bridget Lepere, and we have yet another exciting and insightful show for you this week. We are exploring the dark side of light. Yes, I know it sounds a little bit creepy, but yep, indeed there is a danger in keeping your lights on. We are not talking about the movie a quiet place either but we are in the era where science is realizing that not all that glitters or shines or lights up is good for us at least as far as fluorescent lighting is concerned but if you are wondering what it is that i'm talking about we are tackling the issue of light pollution Yes, it is unfortunately a thing. As the world battles to keep the lights on and look for quicker and greener alternatives to powering up our living spaces, there are quite a number of risks to keeping the man-made lights on. They may mimic natural light, but they are unnatural and therefore not entirely good for the environment. But of course, we are not going to get into this now. Let me keep the suspense going on there for a bit. We still unpack this topic with a nature conservationist from the Witwatersrand University, Dr. Bernard Kutsia. And in Unscience this week, we look at a rather peculiar discovery which was recently unraveled, the dubstep. Yes, the music genre which apparently can be used to repel mosquitoes. And later on in the show, we are still on the issue of light, which is no light matter. We are looking at how the blue light, which is being emitted from our beloved electronic devices, is wrecking havoc on our health. Particularly if we look at the long-term effects they may have on young children, because it is something rather disturbing, if you ask me. But as usual, we kick off the show with the latest news in science. And remember, you can keep in touch with us on social media. On Facebook, we are VowFM. And you can also tweet us at VowFM, hashtag Science Inside. The podcast is up on iTunes and wits.journalism.co.za forward slash science. And our WhatsApp line is, of course, 084-087-4912. Up next, we have the news. This is Science Headline. In your newsmaking headlines this week, uh, African swine fever keeps spreading in Asia, threatening food security, and UCT professor resigns after slamming of his slave intelligence paper. Good evening, I'm Masabulele Luniga. The spread of African swine fever, ASF, uh, in Asia is taking a, wor- a worrisome turn, uh, first reported in northeast China in Uh, August 2018, the highly contagious, often fatal pig disease uh, quickly swept through the country, causing the culling of more than one million pigs. In recent weeks, the fever was reported to have crossed the Vietnam, Cambodia and surrounding Asian countries. Animal health experts agree that the disease will inevitably spread further, uh, citing that many of the newly hit countries are less prepared to deal with ASF uh, than China, which 
which so far has failed uh, to end the outbreaks. Animal epidemiologist uh, Francois Roger of the French Agricultural Research Center for International Development in Montpellier says he believes the virus will soon surface in Myanmar and Laos, which are said to have weak veterinary infrastructures and surveillance surveillance systems. Something endemic in Southeast Asia. A reservoir of endemic disease could also pose a wider threat. ASF contaminated pork products have already been confiscated from air travelers in South Korea, Japan, Taiwan and Australia. The crisis is not only causing economic hardship but also threatens food security in the region. In Vietnam, where pork accounts for more than 1.2 million pigs being killed across the country, which is about 4% of the national herd. ASF is harmless for humans but spreads rapidly among domestic pigs and wild boars through direct contact or exposure to contaminated feed and water. Farm workers run the risk of carrying the virus on shoes, clothing, vehicles and machinery unawares. Um, it can survive in fresh and processed pork products. It is even resistant to some disinfectants. Endemic in most of Africa, the ASF virus jumped to the nation of Georgia in 2007 and has since spread through Russia. According to the report, it probably entered China in imported pork products. Uh, Infected animals suffer high fever, internal bleeding and most often death and there is no treatment. In the second story, the University of Cape Town has asked adjunct professor uh, Simplis Asongu to take his name off a controversial article he co-authored about IQ and slavery. According to the paper's abstract, the study was uh, to establish if there was a link between cognitive ability or intelligence on slave exports from Africa. The report concluded the hypothesis that countries which are endowed with higher levels of cognitive ability were more likely to experience lower levels of slave exports from Africa was in fact correct. Asongu has submitted his resignation. His resignation follows a report in the Mail and Guardian that Asongu, who co-authored the Intelligence and Slave Exports from Africa Oasis with Kodila Tedika, had resigned. UCT's spokesperson Elijah Moholo says the study had not been submitted to the Ethics Committee of the Graduate School of Business, uh, GSB, and no other members of the school were involved in the research. Maholola adds that the study did not go through the GSB research ethical clearance process, which is not unusual for any research by adjunct professors, as they were not full-time members of staff. The study was co-authored with the University of Kinshasa. The university views any research based on or proposing racial stereotypes as being contradictory to the university's academic values and standards of scholarship. The Mail and Guardian reported Asongu as saying that it appears that this scientific article is about to be branded as a racial scholarship, something uh, that he has described as very laughable. This incident follows Ellenbosch University's apology for the trauma caused by a different study article which assessed the cognitive function of a a sample of 60 South African colored women aged between 18 and 64. Recapping your top stories this hour, 
African swine fever keeps spreading in Asia, uh, threatening food security. And UCT professor resigns after slamming of his slave intelligence paper. Thank you, Masulele, for updating us with the news. But I really find these papers that seem to be just coming out and painting really South African professors in a bad light. I mean, these are really racial and I'm quite satisfied that they have resigned and they won't be working with these particular universities anymore. Of course, universities are in turn are trying to protect their own reputations when affiliated with such studies which may be deemed controversial. But of course... Uh, I don't know if there is such a thing called uh, bad science when it comes to uh, research because it is obviously research that has been studied, investigated and and, and obviously uh, concluded. It is said in the articles that the professor didn't collaborate with the university, didn't communicate with the university and therefore they don't feel uh, that they should be associated by such research that could be deemed racially motivated or with uh, certain stereotypes. We'll move right along. Next up, we unpack why turning on your lights may not be such a great idea. Stay listening. You're listening to The Science Inside, bringing you science around major news events. Welcome back. You're still with the Science Inside. And before the break, we were discussing some interesting details on light pollution and the negative effects, not only on the human life, but on animal life and the ecosystem as well. But now we are going into a story on how scientists are realizing the need for industries, specifically those that are in the health, environmental sciences and perhaps businesses in the energy sector which should collaborate and fight the scourge of light pollution more about this from conservation scientist of the university of the witwatersrand dr bernard gutzier most of my research works on global change patterns primarily climate change but i've been increasingly getting interested in other things that might affect the distribution of uh, biodiversity and influence conservation and increasingly that's light pollution. Light pollution, according to Kutsia, is the excessive and conspicuous light produced by humans at night. Mainly, this light is from artificial sources such as lighting from houses, offices, street lamps, billboards or car headlights. Then the other kind of light pollution is from the point source, also called the sky glow, where combined and accumulated effects of point source lighting spreads throughout the atmosphere. This is the slight glow which can be seen on the horizon when looking towards a city from a rural area. Since the 1750s, since the Industrial Revolution, uh, lighting has increased very much globally. Right? And at NARCA, I was almost, depending on, on what estimates you look at, but sky glows, so the diffuse lighting across the atmosphere, it covers almost a quarter of the terrestrial surface of the planet. And a third of humanity now lives under light-polluted skies, which means they can't see the Milky Way. And so, of course, it's come to benefits of people. That's why we use it. It's extended leisure time and it's extended time for work, for instance. But it's also come at a cost. And I think that's become increasingly clear with work done globally. Apart from celestial lighting, it would be negligent to believe that synthetic lighting is unnecessary due to most of the Earth being surrounded by complete darkness at night. 
This means on an evolutionary timescale, life on Earth has adapted to constant and regular day-night cycles. Since the 1750s, since the Industrial Revolution, uh, lighting has increased very much globally, right? And at Naka was almost, depending on, on what estimates you look at, but sky glows, so the diffuse lighting across the atmosphere covers almost a quarter of the terrestrial surface of the planet. And a third of humanity now lives under light polluted skies, which means they can't see the Milky Way. And so, of course, it's come to benefits of people. That's why we use it. It's extended leisure time and it's extended time for work, for instance. But it's also come at a cost. And I think that's become increasingly clear with work done globally. Disruption of natural light cycles is particularly acute with newer LED lights, which are increasingly being adopted globally for their energy efficiency benefits, but there's very little consideration of their negative health effects. It's one of the less polluted, and that's simply a consequence of economic development. So there are less extensive cities in Africa than across Africa than there is in Europe, for instance. And of course, Africa is very large, and so there are substantial places that are still under unlight polluted and dark skies now following the global trend most people are adopting led lights right because they're energy efficient and they're quite cheap but the problem is that led lights produce light in the spectrum that's the blue spectrum that's probably the most harmful it's the one that's skewed into or, or what most of the physiological response is queuing to and so there's some balance here between Africa's economic trajectory and the impact of all sorts of things, not just light pollution, but climate change, habitat destruction, all, all the major things we need to be concerned about is to ensure that we undergo a sustainable economic trajectory but don't compromise environmental and social health. But light pollution is such a new kid on the block. I don't think a lot of people talk about it. It's certainly not in the public discourse. Kutsia says almost a quarter of global land area is now under polluted skies, with 80% of the world's population now living under light polluted skies, meaning a third of humanity can no longer see the Milky Way. If you live anywhere near a city, you're definitely getting exposed to it. And so the point is that it permeates, permeates a lot of our day-to-day lives. I think what people are really only now grasping is just what the environmental and health consequences of this is. Like I say, I often say to people, it's like smoking in the 70s that, that people didn't talk about, right? People didn't think that smoking causes cancer. And it took a while for the medical consensus to really be convincing. And then when it came out, it was very clear that smoking causes cancer. And I think that, that there's a ton of work to be done, but certainly the early indications are that, that this could be a potentially massive health consequence to many, many people. Some 20 years ago, the city of Los Angeles was thrust into utter darkness after a massive earthquake and emergency service personnel were reported to receiving reports of a giant silvery cloud engulfing the sky. Little did the callers know that they were in fact seeing the Milky Way in the night sky for the very first time. I think the problem from an engineering perspective is that the engineers are trying to recreate daylight. So what it looks like in the color scheme that we see as we move along the day. But that's exactly what your body is skewed into to respond to as light. And so softer lighting will really help you sort of in the short term. There's increasing work about computer screens and screen time, for instance. I'm not convinced of the link yet but there's certainly potential that or certainly some indication that you really want to try and reduce your screen time before bedtime for instance and so let the hormones kick in and try and get natural sleep.
The big light pollution drivers to look at is whether they are synergistic. Kutsia adds that studies on the effects that one may have on the other or how they all interact together has not been looked at, but there is no reason to believe that various factors may exacerbate the problem. It certainly has seemed to strike a chord with a lot of people, uh, mainly because the more I get into this and the more I read, and like I said, the literature is expanding, but it really is terrifying. And the more I see about it, it, is, it has gotten a bit bad, and I've adopted these kind of things in my own household now as well. Reduced lighting and reduced um, lighting times, and trying to stick to dark night cycles. Putting block-out curtains on the curtains, for instance, to stop ambient light. I'm lucky that I live in quite a dark area, and so that's less of a consequence. But yeah, for sure, I think I think if anything uh, from if you take anything from this, it's, it's that we should really start thinking about this. I mean, if that's the case, we should roll it out in different mechanisms in the public sphere with funding for research, funding for and conducting more research on it, um, more discussions with government, uh, more discussions with your neighbours. Let's try and uh, open up the debate and really see what uh, the, the, the issues are here and uh, what the practical solutions are. What strikes me about this whole issue, I think, is how simpler it is to resolve than other complex issues like climate change, for instance. Um, we know what the problem is, uh, and we, there are some very clear-cut solutions that can be applied to, to try and resolve it um, uh, for, for quite small changes for big gain. It's, there's not too, you can make quite small changes in your day-to-day life and have quite a big um, impact on your local light pollution, but then also on the, on the sky glow. Uh, and so, like I say, municipalities in Europe are really adopting this, and it, it doesn't cost them a hell of a lot more money. They're saving energy in the in the long run, and so they've just made the decision to to adopt better lighting um, um, that still hits the aesthetic qualities that they want, but does not compromise the health of the citizens. And so, not too much fanfare or hiccup; they've just done it. These are some of the changes which could be implemented to effect noticeable changes. Like many things, if we're really going to tackle a serious problem properly, we have to look at it from a, from a bunch of different angles. I think it starts with the individual. It's a bit of awareness, just looking at how in your life this is affecting you and how you might be able to reduce it. I would like to see a governmental response, but I'm not sure what form that will take. But we certainly have to bring this into our economic development. This really should form part of the, the discourse at a minimum. And then I think what is really important is that the, the research community, especially in Africa and South Africa in particular, should really start focusing on this, this issue. It's, it's not something that the, the funders, for instance, typically back and put money behind. And I think that's something of a shortfall. It's something of an oversight of the research community as well. Whatever your field is, I would encourage you just, just to try and make the links between life, especially in medicine and the environmental fields and sustainability, because it's really the pernicious issue that's, that's banging on the door. Cities such as Berlin have rolled out a different kind of street lights to counteract the effect of the pollution. The two big things is extent and severity. Those are the two big things to look at. And so, like I say, it's most of humanity is now affected by it. If you live in an urban area or you use lights at night, um, you're impacted by it. And so that's virtually everyone on the planet now. In fact, very rare to find people that have no access to um, electrical infrastructure. They're restricted to extremely remote parts of the planet. And so the extent of light pollution is, is significant. And the issue is that it's, it's, it's also quite significant even at very low intensities. So even small bursts of LED light after dark can, can change the expression of, of hormones in your body. And then the, the, the other axis is the severity of the impacts. And so um, I raised some of the, you know, the issues with, with human health. But if we just look at the environmental impacts, for instance, it's changing the, 
the, the timing of uh, breeding events for um, birds, for instance, one of the often quoted um, impacts of line pollution is that it disorientates sea turtles. And so what happens is the, the turtles breed out on the beaches and then they follow the light, which usually is the moonlight or the celestial light shining at the water. But if the light produced behind them, they head away from the water and they head into the land. And so that, that's a very, very well-known old impact. But the more we look, the more we find uh, impacts in physiology and in behavior of animals and across different taxonomic groups. And so the signal emerging is that it is quite a pronounced impact both for human physiology and for environmental systems. In conclusion, Kutsia says there might be some opportunities for big players such as ASCOM and other role players to collaborate and strike heaps with just one stone in fighting this problem. Well, that was it for tonight's story on light pollution. But remember, you can find us on Facebook as VowFM and you can also tweet us at VowFM, hashtag Science Inside. Stay listening. Next up, we unravel mysteries of life in unscience. This is the Science Inside. It's time for Unscience, and as per usual, we look at the stranger side of research and we take a peek at what scientists spend a lot of their time, their efforts, and money on. Today's Unscience was produced by Masibulele Lunika. Unusual, unlikely, unscience. Tonight, I have something really interesting, which I think will make you happy with regards to tackling mosquitoes. Yeah, well, I'm looking forward to that. I want to hear more about this. A lot of people can agree that these tiny blood-sucking monsters are outright annoying, if not terrifying. I remember many summer nights, especially back home in Eastern Cape, uh, when I could just not sleep because of their uh, constant buzzing over my ear. Uh, But I just want to find out from you, Bridget, what methods uh, have you used or do you use to, to get rid of mosquitoes if you try? Well, I burn those steaks that they have in the supermarkets. I found one that was very effective. You just open it basically and then you don't even need to burn it. Sometimes I use uh, those ointments yeah. yeah, on the skin. But yeah, it's a bit problematic if you're going to jump into bed with that Vaseline. Yeah, yeah. it doesn't feel too great. Well, the yeah. smell is not problematic, but the rubbing of the Vaseline against your blankets and then yeah. you have to wash them. It's too much too of much an effort. Yeah. Cause and then a lot of people have different methods. Some just prefer chasing them around with a pillow. Now you may have to look no further, especially if you are a fan of a genre in music called dubstep. Um, if you don't know dubstep music, it's a genre of electronic dance music that originated um, in South London in the late 1990s. It is generally characterized by sparse, uh, syncopated rhythmic patterns uh, with massive bass lines that contain um, prominent sub bass frequencies and epic uh, gigantic breakdowns Um, that's according to Google uh, but I simply call it white people music and personally I'm a huge fan Uh, do you know dubstep Bridget? 
Yeah, I've heard of dubstep before, but I wouldn't really say YPG music. <laughs> yes, I was first introduced it's by like one so of my... It's like so stereotyping. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I first heard of it uh, through a friend of mine in varsity, who happened to be white, of course, and he, he, he was just a huge fan and made me listen to it. I was like, oh, this is such an odd type of music, but it grew on me. Uh, but it was, it, was, it was actually weird to see this discovery, which basically... So this is a sample of dubstep music if you just want to hear it out. So that was a loud sample. If you didn't notice, it is the same song playing in the background, just are more subtle. Uh, there's a particular artist, very popular in the US, who goes by the name of Skrillex, that does uh, this sort of music. A recent BBC article covered how a new scientific study found that listening to this guy's music, uh, whose name ironically sounds like a mosquito repellent, out loud can protect from mosquitoes. Well, one song in particular called A Scary Monsters. Scary monsters. <laughs> <laughs> the irony, right? Yeah. Well, according to the report recently published in the scientific journal Acta Tropica, the Skrillex song Scary Monsters and Nice Sprites is highly effective in keeping these tiny monsters from your sweet, sweet blood. Uh, the scientists um, exposed the yellow fever mosquito, uh, Aedes um, aegypti, uh, scientific way of calling these, uh, to dubstep music to see whether the music had any effect in repairing them. They chose this song, Scary Monsters and Nice Sprites, because of its mix of very high and very low frequencies, which they thought might mess uh, with the mosquitoes. Hmm, I'm really intrigued. I'd like to find out if this thing really does work, if it's effective if in it's any effective. way. But there's more to it. Uh, adult females of the specific species were said to be entertained by the music and fed on their hosts only later and with less enthusiasm than they had uh, when they were not listening to uh, the multi-Grammy award-winning artist. The music apparently had some impact on the males as well because all told, mosquitoes subjected to the song uh, had sex far less often than the controlled group. Um, the report reads, the observation that such music can delay host attack, reduce uh, blood feeding and disrupt mating provides new avenues for the development of music-based personal protective and control measures against AIDS-borne uh, diseases. What do you think? Wait, is this contradictory? Because I thought you said they are entertained more by the music, but now the study saying they're not mating as often. There seems to be a, quite a different way in how they uh, impact the, the different uh, gender groups of mosquitoes. Obviously, the females are said to, to be entertained by the music and when they feed on their host, they only do it later and with less enthusiasm. So I don't know if they're entertained in a positive way or bad way. For me, it just sounds that obviously they're impacted in, a, in such a way that they don't feed as, as they normally would on their chosen host. Whereas with the males, it's different because it then reduces their attacks and their blood feeding and, and, and also their mating process. Okay, so they wouldn't be likely to mate during this time when the music is being played? Of course, and also feed on you maybe at least later. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm still not really convinced because if they're just leaving you as, you know, like a, a lunchbox type of type <laughs> situation, of then yeah. I don't think it's as effective because, I mean, what if it happens during a time when you're really in your deep sleep and then, then you can't do anything? 
can't do you anything. Know? Yeah. But at least you won't wake up with the same amount of bruises and uh, and uh, bites as you normally would, I guess. But how do you know? Because maybe it might just double because they may have invited <laughs> more of their friends. <laughs> For a party. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, that's what the study says. And uh, considering, personally, when I listen to dubstep, for summer, I, I think I'll consider it much more often now. And considering that a Swiss cheese maker recently discovered that prolonged exposure to rap music, specifically by a tribe called Quest, uh, makes cheese taste even better. I think it's been quite a banner month for scientific discoveries about unorthodox uses of music. Wow, so cheese has ears as well. <laughs> <Very> <laughs> I think I think rather has effect on you when you eat the cheese. Oh, great! I think then that that makes more sense. That makes more sense, but I, I I wish I could try that out as well. Sure. This week's unscience was sourced from BBC News and Stereo Gum. It's unusual, unlikely unscience. Well, there you have it, folks. There was it on unscience this week and later on we are going to have a chat with dermatologist dr dagmar whittaker who has expanded a bit more on this topic of light pollution and so we are going to be looking at the damaging effects of blue light emitted by our electronic devices and how these emissions may lead to cancer and other health related risks stay tuned unusual unlikely unscience Stay curious, stay informed, stay on the science inside. Are you suffering from a digital hangover? Think about this. What is the first thing that you do before sleeping or waking up? What about what do you find yourself doing at your desk the entire day, every day at work? Are you getting the picture? It appears that blue light may be our generation's biggest skin enemy, taking into consideration the amount of time we spend indoors rather than outdoors, health specialists are finding that our lifestyle choices are not only impacting negatively on our skin, but sitting in front of our televisions or cell phones binge watching our favorite series can literally be written all over our faces. The effects range from hyperpigmentation, eye damage, right down to an altered face from looking down at our phone screens all the time. In our final story tonight, we go straight into an interview with Cape Town-based dermatologist Dr. Dagmar Whitaker, who specializes in photodynamic therapy, minor surgical procedures, skin cancer diagnosis and treatment. She's also the president of Melanoma Society South Africa, vice president of the World Melanoma Society and chairperson of the Independent Practice Association of Dermatologists in the Western Cape. Let's get into it. I wanted us to speak about the issue of light, specifically blue light damage onto our skins. I mean, the uh, computers and, and our televisions, they now have advanced technology where they use LCD and LED screens, which do not emit the harmful light. But what about our cell phones and the tablets that we use on a daily basis? Absolutely, that remains a big problem. It's a cell phone, the tablet, the e-book, which is uh, probably one of the first researched problems with blue light emissions because it changes the sleeping pattern of people who read at night in their e-book. So those devices are certainly still in the high emission of high frequency 
light, which is the blue-violet uh, light, and therefore definitely has got a lot of damaging effects. And research into blue light and its damage on the skin and basically on the human body, how long have we been looking into this? See, it's a difficult question because, for instance, dermatology, blue light for years and years as a therapeutic modality, we have been treated skin cancers with something we call photodynamic therapy where we use blue light or red light. We are treating inflammatory conditions like acne with blue light. We are treating fungal infections with blue light. So initially, it's all the hype about the good effects of the instrument that we are using. But as time goes on, then obviously somebody raises some concerns and that leads then to research if there are any negative effects in the devices that we are using. And of course, that then includes many, many more devices than just medical devices, i.e. the cell phones and the tablets and computers. So I think the research in particular, it started with the research involving the effects on the eye and therefore not only the retina and from the macular degeneration, but in particular the damage to the circadian rhythm, which means that the trouble sleeping patterns that people have been experiencing. But that concern in itself then led to the research, well, could it have negative effects on the skin as well and there was one article which is fairly recent which uh, cited the possibility of it not only causing pigmentation on the skin which again we are very well aware of but also maybe uh, due to DNA damage even uh, causing cancer rather than us using it to treat cancer but this research is very very new and if it actually confirmed or not still remains to be seen but there are Lots of concerns revolving around that which are already established. All right, and we're moving really quickly into this interview because you're touching on a lot of points that I wanted us to speak about, but can it lead to skin cancer? There's only one concern that it might. Basically, we all know that UV radiation is capable of uh, changing the DNA degree that it leads to skin cancer and the blue light as the first visible light the energy of the UV light enough to cause cancer there must be speculation that the one closest to the UV rays namely radiation namely the blue light is also capable of doing cancer of course it is a matter of how much of this energy do you need to actually crack the genetic coding and then cause DNA damage but it is you know understandable if you consider how many hours and hours people nowadays staying in contact with blue light that maybe there is some truth in it and we find in a few years time that it actually can lead to cancer it's not established yet but it is a concern that needs to be researched what about blue light also leading to premature aging is there a possibility or any Definitely. truth to that? I think the fields which are, as far as the skin is concerned, more established is the development of hyperpigmentation and also the destruction of elastic fibers and leading to premature aging of the skin. I think that is more or less trusted and believed that that is a possibility. And that is also a reason why now a lot of cosmetics are putting in filters to counteract the effects of blue light. And also, for instance, there are sunscreens now available, which is completely different from the sunscreens that we are using in daily life to prevent skin cancer, but to counteract the effects of the blue light, for instance, on pigmentation and on photo aging. 
Right. So you also touched on blue light, which could possibly lead to macular degeneration and possibly blindness. So I wanted you to speak a little bit more on this as to what the periods that one would have to be exposed to this light or the amount of strain that the eye maybe might be taking and might lead to the blindness. You see, the difference between regulation, which is known to cause cataracts and also contributing to macular degeneration, with the blue light, blue light does not get absorbed or filtered out by either the cornea or the lens. It can literally penetrate right through the eye, but it still has got enough energy. So, for instance, if you take red light, but also the moment you see a color, it means it gets to the retina, which is the back of your eye. So if you see blue, then you know that it has been recognized by the retina, so it has reached the retina. UV light you don't see, so that gets blocked out by your by your lens and by your cornea. But the retina still gets the full exposure of the blue light, which is out of all the light spectrum, the highest energy of all the, all the visible light. Now, of course, one has to uh, take into account that by far the most... Um, biggest amount of blue light exposure will still come from natural sunlight or natural daylight. But as I say, because we are increasing our exposure beyond the normal daylight hours, i.e. now at night reading from an e-book or sitting in front of a computer or even texting or, or uh, using the, the um, iPhone, not for phoning, but uh, for searching the web. So we are increasing our exposure voluntarily to the uh, blue light immensely. So that, again, the, the blue light is of an energy that can damage the, the retina and then can lose or can lead to macular or contribute to macular degeneration. And with regards to the skin as well, do you see it being more evasive in maybe certain ethnic groups? There is, for instance, as far as pigmentation is concerned, that I think is quite well established. A research that hyperpigmentation, for instance, would occur more in the darker skin types, say four, five, and six. And of course, on the other hand, skin cancer would occur more in the lighter skin types, one, two, three. It is possibly a co-factor. It, it can't be blamed as the only factor, but it is one of the factors that one can't ignore. So I think one must be aware of the possibility of it being dangerous and not just assume it is perfectly safe. Obviously, as I say, it is co-contributed by natural sunlight, which probably uh, all in all has got a greater effect. But still, I don't think one can ignore the negative effects of the blue light. All right. And what are the telltale tail signs that one can see and maybe try and prevent further damage to the skin? Look, I think if your profession means that you have uh, excessive exposure to blue light, then as far as the skin is concerned, at the present moment, what they have developed, uh, rather than non-specific antioxidants, because all the skin damage happens via oxidation, the addition of antioxidants to the cream is one possibility. But I don't think that is researched well enough to say that it does make, it, make a difference. However, probably in the last 
couple of years, they have introduced what I mentioned briefly before, uh, sunscreens which in particular contain iron oxide rather than the titanium and the zinc which doesn't block out a visible light. And the iron oxide is one of the filters, if at the present moment not the only filter, which actually does filter out the blue light as well. So for instance, if you know that you are overly exposed to uh, any of the technical equipment, uh, equipment emitting blue light then use an iron oxide containing sunscreen. I think that would be possibly uh, the most important. And as far as the eyes is concerned, that is even more complicated because most of the uh, sunglasses that you're getting, they are UV filters. But again, UV filters is a much higher energy, so they would still let the blue light through. And I think it will come in the future possibly that people who are literally like eight hours in front of the computer or whatever, that they will have to use these yellow glasses that block out blue light. The preventative measures are slowly in progress and they are coming. And I think there will be a much bigger awareness in the future about the damaging rays that we are exposing ourselves to. And this, that will lead to the development of more protective measurements. And just maybe the last question, what preventative measures can we take as normal citizens so that we do not get exposed to extended hours of exposure to blue light? I think the most important is to protect children because that is where most of the damage will and can be. If you look at, for instance, children but also adults, they are using these electronic devices very close to their face. If you, for instance, would say like they know that the radiation emitted from the phone on a call can lead to a higher incidence of brain tumors, and then they said, okay, let's not put our phone next to the ear, let's put it on Bluetooth, let's keep it away from our body at least a meter. I think the same would apply to the electronics used as far as your face is concerned. So the distance at which you can keep the electronic device is the first step of prevention. So don't hold it too close to your face. Mm -hmm. And as I say, again, hugely critically important in children. You know, any parent should have the responsibility to not have too much electronic exposure for their children because they all hold it like within 10 centimeters of their face. Yes. And then as far as the computers is concerned, of course, there are computer screen devices available uh, which screen out a lot of the blue light. Clearly, that is not available for cell phones or tablets or e-books yet. But I think as one would be, protection would be to hold it not too close to your body. And just to talk more about it in public, that there is an awareness that it might not all be good. Every, every coin has got two sides, although we reap all the benefits of communication and everything that goes with these electronic devices, one must still be a little bit careful in, in the use. And of course, anybody who is, for instance, that I mentioned right in the beginning, the disturbance of the circadian rhythm, it was the first thing that was noticed that any adult or child who has got screen time before they go to sleep will develop sleep problems because basically your body is designed for dark and light cycles which basically regulates your circadian rhythm that means that awake time and sleep time and the absolute worldwide recommendation is which is followed by nobody i can say that at the same breath no screen time for two hours before you go to sleep Wow. I mean, that is enormous. And why are so many people nowadays needing sleeping tablets? Why are so many people needing antidepressants? I mean, it's a very wide field that we are talking about, but it is definitely a very strong contributing factor to your sleeping pattern if you have got any kind of screen time 
within two hours before going to sleep. Well, thank you so much for the interview, Dr. Ritika. I really appreciate the time and it has been a really insightful interview. It's a pleasure. Stay listening and stay tuned. We return after the break. This is the Science Inside. This week's edition of the show was particularly interesting and eye-opening as far as how invasively our lifestyles can impact on our environment and our general well-being. But who would have known that there could be such huge negative effects from synthetic lighting and how they, they could impact negatively on us and the damages that our devices could possibly have on our skin and our eyes. And this is not only from the negative negative side we do need these lights for our daily life but we do also have to consider the negative effects that this light could have on our lives because so many of us are so oblivious to the glaring realities and facts of light pollution but that is where we leave it this week a big thank you to all of our guests who were featured on tonight's show including Dr. Bernard Gutsia and Dr. Dagmar Whitaker our team behind the scenes is production by Masibulele Lunika and tech by Gudwano Serami. The Science Inside Podcast.